Welcome to the ghostly sports world of snooker. A tale to mystify. Are you prepared to meet him, our hero? Frame 39, quiet please. A gloved hand moves with serenity. The crowd shuffle and fidget. The lights are dim. The table, a giant slab and balls. Balls of many colors. The man to the right of the table stands proudly, chest firm and supported. Seated, tense and nervous, our hero stares at the vast slate monolith, cradled in a frame of mahogany and waits. Waits for his opponent to cock up and give him a go. Although it doesn't look likely, he looks quietly confident. 17. The referee's voice once again slices through the silence as our hero's opponent pots yet another black. It's a silence that seems to move, a silence that is one with the atmosphere, loaded with potential energy, heavy, dense, and total. He can see cameramen. They are everywhere. Lenses staring through him and giving the snooker world a glimpse of his mortality. He is sat. He is ready. He is losing. 24. Another black, he thinks. The frame they are playing is the decider. Win the frame, win the game, and take home 120,000 pounds. A little patience is all that is needed, because there is no doubt that soon he will be back at the table. The gates will be open, the pressure on his opponent to keep potting, retaining position, potting. 40. Look at his stance, he thinks. That stance is loaded with tension. His elbow looks stiff. He must feel like it needs oiling. He suddenly says aloud, like the Tin Man from Oz. The game stops dead, but only momentarily. Everyone in the crowd looks away from him, embarrassed. His opponent stands to gather himself, and play continues. 33. Fuck. I can't believe I said that aloud, he thinks. I must be more nervous than I thought. Oh, bloody hell, look at my hands, shaking. Shaking like a battered wife. The referee stands tall. He clasps his hands behind his back and seems to freeze to the spot. Turned to stone, as if the eyes of Medusa herself 40. were upon him. As if he were some kind of all-gothic, half-man, half-penguin. Caught in the headlights of a ghostly juggernaut, heading straight for the gates of hell, intent on smashing them. Not knocking, not blowing the horn, not flashing the lights, or even winding the window down and shouting, Get out of the way! But just pile-driving right on through them. He was the referee of this snooker game, and you'd better not fuck about with him. 41. The referee now moves swiftly and replaces the black ball, colour of death, onto its heathen cross, marked on the green bays, eternally for all to see. Our hero looks back down at his hands and realises that he hasn't tasted the water, the cool, 48. clear, fresh water provided on a table next to his chair. He takes a sip. A smattering of applause breaks out. Must have been a belting shot. He realises something. The score so far can only mean one thing. He's potted four blacks in a row, he thinks. I wonder what the devil is up to. If he gets the next one, that'll be five. Ooh, at that point, he sees an attractive young lady across the room. She's sat in the front row. Her hair is blonde and curly, resplendent and regal, framing her perfect face and dancing from her shoulders to her breasts. He thinks of Erin. Erin, the only woman he ever loved truly. 
the woman he had loved since childhood, and the only woman he would ever love. The most perfect day he'd ever spent had been with her. That special day, they'd walked through the meadows of Chorley, the village where they'd both grown up. They'd found a path that led into the forest. It was a beautiful day, hot, close. They found a yew tree, which jutted out of an embankment overlooking a babbling stream, concealed and charmed. He took the crisps and sandwiches from his bag, and there they sat and ate until it was all gone. Their eyes met, and a spark shot between them. He leaned closer to her, never once taking his eyes from hers, and her not leaving his, his heart beating out of his chest with fear. But before the two young lovers could kiss for that first special time, at the time when they were both at their most vulnerable, his memory dealt him a cruel blow and revealed to him how this memory ended. He shouted, big lips coming towards me, really loudly. So loudly, in fact, that he scared Erin out of her wits, causing her to roll down the embankment and land in the stream. He found out two things that day. The first was that Erin and he weren't meant to be. And the second was that he had a tendency to shout loudly when he was nervous. He couldn't help it. Some professors back in the 70s had decided to put a label on what it was. They called it whatever. He called it hell. Tourette's, that's what it is. He was the world's first Tourette's Syndrome World Snooker finalist. Why choose snooker? Most silent of all competitive sports, I hear you ask. Well, the answer is simple. He didn't choose snooker. Snooker chose him. Now here he sat, waiting for his turn at the table and growing dangerously nervous. He could feel himself getting hotter in the cheeks as the embarrassing memory of what happened that day between him and Erin, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before another outburst. The worst thing for him was everybody else knowing. He'd read the hurtful jokes and articles in the sports papers, the photographs of him twitching in the background while his opponent tried to take his shot without laughing. The fact that every single person in this room, including the referee, were just waiting for him to shout bastard didn't make it any easier for him. They didn't know what it was like to be afflicted. He looked back at the girl who'd been the image of Erin and found she was now a warty, ugly old trout, a shoebox of a woman, a lampshade of a woman, a Teflon-coated frying pan of a human being, a girl whose face looked like a car accident involving lots of cyclists and a lorry carrying milk. Bitch, 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 how could she? She only had to forgive and forget. So she got a little wet, he shouted. Then he pursed his lips. 56. Nobody looked at him. Again, they just pretended he wasn't there. The fact that his little problem was so easily ignored just made it worse. Like when a child climbs all over you in the waiting 57. room of the doctor's surgery and it makes you want to stand up and scream at the mother to do her fucking job properly. He looked down and saw his fist clamped around his towel. It had gone white, bloodless, due to the ferocity of his grip. Relax, just relax. What's the score? Is he past the point of no return yet? 65. Have I already lost? He looked up at the scoreboard and did some red to black calculations. He'd potted 10 black balls. That meant he'd also potted 10 red balls. Okay, 11 red balls. It was beyond saving now 72. and that was for certain. He'd lost the frame in the game. Or rather, the other guy had won it. Not an easy thing to do, Snooker. Not an easy thing to do at all. A feeling of serenity washed over him. He was now at a point where there was no more pressure. So 73. Please understand that a tremendous amount of pressure will do strange things to even the most normal people. 
and it would be easy to judge his thoughts and actions and to be less than complimentary with the verdict. But now all was well. Now I shall sit back and be treated to a fine display of snooker. It will be my swan song. I will sit with an approving look in my eyes and I will be graceful. 81. Look at him. What a fine specimen of a player. His poise is fantastic. He is smooth and swift around the table. Look at how he... 88. Oh, God, no. It was at that moment with a bang that he realised he might be homosexual. It had never occurred to him before now that he spent eight hours a day for five days of the week for the last 89. 16 years of his life playing snooker. And that on average, he would have been seated for half of that time at least, which meant that for four hours a day, for two and a half days a week, for the last eight years of his life, he's been staring at a variety of male rumps. He should be a bloody 96. expert by now. An arse expert, he thought. A bloody arse expert. I'm a bloody arse expert. Applause ripped through the arena as the century was broken. Whoops and hollers and whistles and yells erupted throughout, tearing him from his homosexual ponderings and causing him to leap to his feet, clapping wildly. He sat back down. It suddenly occurred to him that he would be able to have a wonderfully relaxing holiday very, very soon. After all of the interviews were over, he would go home where it was warm and safe. Prize money for the runner-up is not to be sneezed at. Somewhere hot. The referee's voice became apparent to him once again. One hundred and five. He felt the light at the end of the tunnel warming his face. The glows of it made his body tingle and made him want to stretch and yawn in the most revolting and decadent way. That was red ball number 15. The last one hundred and twelve. From now to the end of the frame, his opponent would have to pot all of the colours following the next black that just went down. Yellow, green, brown, blue, pink and black. He strained to see the formation of the remaining colours. 120. If the formation was perfect, i.e. all of the balls were on their spots, he should have little difficulty completing that rare snooker feat, a televised 147 break. And this one would be extra special because it will be in the final frame, in the final of the World Championships. He now found himself really rooting for his opponent. That's it, mate. Keep calm. It's just like the practice table back in the snooker club. All you have to do is remember that you've done this a hundred times before. All of the hard work is done. Clean up and collect your check. You've pulled her. She's back at your place. Just don't do anything stupid between here and the bed sheets, and you'll be home and dry. 122. The applause now follows each ball that goes down. Some snooker fans spend their lives going to watch the world championships and never witness a 147 in a final. Never mind for the final frame. Sat in his chair, 125. he stares at his opponent with mounting adoration. The tension has reached unbearable proportions. Nearly everybody in the theatre is straining to get a look. Two 129. more balls to go, pink and black. Silence falls as his opponent lines up his penultimate shot, the pink. The crowd goes wild. The white ball springs back from the ball cushion and falls into position. The last black. Blacker than night, than ebony, than the hair of a true Romany being washed beneath the crescendo of a waterfall. As one, the crowd draws a breath as the white continues its path and settles against the side cushion. This last shot is not going to be easy, not by a long way. The frame was won long ago. Now, 
the opponent is playing for a place in sporting legend. Folklore, myth, fable, allegory, fairy tale. The opponent looks, judging the angle of the shot. A pin could now be heard if it dropped in Cardiff. The opponent makes his final descent, bowing to the table and spreading his fingers to create the perfect rest position. His cue is poised. Every part of his body is taut and still as deep space. But for his pendulous lower arm, swinging back and forth in ghostly practice motion. In the corner, sat tense as a steel crane pulley rope under maximum strain, our hero sits. The arm of the opponent comes back for the final swing before sending the white ball to its destiny. The arm comes down to make contact. Pop the black, Dave! He shouts. <gasps> the opponent's head cocks slightly in response to the earth-shattering shout that came from the corner. The cue follows through, striking the ball straight through the centre. The white ball glides along the glass-like base until it meets its quarry. The shining, ultimate black ball. The two universal entities strike each other. The contact is good. The momentum of the white ball transmits itself in shockwaves through to the black, which goes spinning towards the lower left pocket. But no, the black looks to be traveling one fraction of a degree too far to the right. Will it go in or miss? It strikes against the top side of the cushion, which marks the entrance to the pocket. It bounces across to the other side of the pocket, then does a frantic rattle between the two sides before jumping out of the pocket and moving away. The opponent has missed. The audience let out virtual screams of agony as they watch the ball fly away from the pocket. The opponent drops to his knees, clutching his head in disbelief. Sat in the corner, our hero looks at the floor in shame. What have I done? He thinks. It's all ruined. Ruined. I can never show my face. Go on! Screams a man from the crowd. Somebody else joins him. Go on, go on, go on! Until suddenly the whole crowd is urging something to do something. He looks up and sees the black ball travelling slightly towards the right. But it's definitely going in the right direction. If it can just keep rolling, it'll go in. It'll, 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 it'll go in. It'll... The crowd erupts as the black ball rolls slowly into the middle pocket. The opponent has scored 147 points in the final frame of the final. What a glorious day for snooker. The opponent stands in his dressing room, looking at the trophy. All of the spectators have left now, probably gone to some pub to celebrate. The opponent just stands looking at his trophy. A knock comes from the door. Come in, says the opponent. Our hero comes around the door. Our hero stands there. Our hero looks unwell. I just wanted to apologise for shouting out there. It was lucky for me that the ball went down. If I hadn't have shouted, you'd have potted it first time, I've no doubt. That's fine, said the opponent. If it makes you feel any better, I know exactly how you feel. My mother has Tourette's. If only people would be more understanding towards other people who have disabilities, the world would be a better place. And hey, it's only a sport, not the end of the world. Or even life and death, just a sport. Put it there. The opponent holds out his hand, and he takes it. They shake. 